when it's drugs, there's money. And when cops are involved, it's very high. Uh, it's very likely that it's going to entice cops into being corrupt. So they basically put uh, Mike Dow, like Mike Dowd. Mike Mike Dowd. Yeah, I've had him. On, I had him on my show a couple times. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, terrible. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and we're going to do an interview with Mike Cadella. Uh, he was a. I'm going to say New York police officer, but I'm going to let him correct me and tell me exactly, you know, uh, who he worked for. Um, he runs a, he's retired now. He runs a YouTube channel. The name of the channel is, uh, up against the wall with, uh, I don't know if it's with, uh, Mike Cadella, but I'll put the link in the description and he's, uh, he's a fascinating guy. And, uh, I've actually watched a, a I watched a video on him and about the son of Sam and I want to, so we're going to do this, uh, do the interview. So check this out. And nice to see you, by the way, Matt. Oh yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we talked before. So, um, and I was, I was on your, you know, I did your channel like, uh, uh two weeks ago. Yeah. 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 Thanks for that. Yeah. Right. Um, so, um, so you were, you were, you were born in Brooklyn and the, the neighborhood was kind of a mixture of, yeah, I've, I've heard, I've heard parts of the story, but yeah. Yeah. So I was born in Brooklyn. Um, the neighborhood was a mixture of civil service guys and, um, construction guys and, and a lot of, uh, mob guys. Basically. Right. I mean, like a lot of Brooklyn, um, right. social clubs on the corner and, and wise guys driving their beautiful cars and, 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 you know, some guys got enticed by that and other guys, you know, some kids get enticed by that and some don't. And, um, you know, you go one way or the other, basically. Yeah, it makes it makes me I mean, when you had described it or, or describing now, it, it just makes me think of, you know, Goodfellas and and, you know, um, a Bronx tale. And, you know, where's you know, they're driving around in Cadillacs and you've got guys who are you know driving buses, guys who are police officers, guys, that you know, mixed in with these, you know, with wise guys and. Um, and that's, that's, and so at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a police officer or, or did you always want to be a police officer? No, I actually didn't always want to be, I mean, I, I didn't have, uh, my, my old man was a cop, so I didn't have anything against cops, at a, you know, by any means, but it wasn't something that really, uh, enticed me or, or, uh, something I, I aspired to do. You know, I was just knocking around to be honest. Um, just thinking, you know, hope, thinking things were going to figure themselves out. I hung out with some wild guys, guys whose fathers were connected and that kind of stuff. And I got involved with some shit that could have got me really jammed up uh, with the mob and and with the police. And I actually was able to, you know, I guess escape um, by the skin of my teeth and not get jammed up, not get in trouble, not get shot. And um, I decided I just happened to take the cop test somewhere along the line. And when they called me, there was nothing really going on. And I just grabbed the job, you know. Your, your father wasn't, he didn't push you to, to do that or. No, he, I mean, he, he wanted me to take a lot of the civil service exams, fireman, cop, um, you know, whatever, a court officer or, you know, uh, my, some of my neighbors were construction guys. I worked with them a lot of the summers. Um, he just wanted me to stay on a straight and narrow path. He wasn't looking for me to become a cop, you know, but, but like I said, when I took the test and they did call, I wasn't doing anything special. And, um, then, then once I got called, I really wanted to like put my head down and, and try to be like a, you know, like a, like a good cop. So one, I mean, once you started would once you'd been doing it for a year or two, I mean, 
were you thinking you wanted to just stay like a, a regular kind of beat cop or did you aspire like, Hey, I want to be a detective. I want to be a homicide. Yeah. Like well, what I, happened, I, I went know. to Coney Island first and, and in uniform, like most guys. And um, when I say like most guys, like most guys go into uniform first and, and it wasn't as active as I wanted it as I was looking for. Although Coney Island could get crazy because of course, I didn't work in the nice area of Coney Island. I didn't work on the boardwalk. I didn't work where the rides were. You know, that's not what Coney Island is to most cops. So Coney Island is a gritty, tough neighborhood with, filled with projects. And I was a housing cop initially and worked the projects. And, you know, it's a, it's a low-income neighborhood, tough tough neighborhood. So that's what Coney Island is for most people. Not Like I said, not, not the amusement park area. Um, but it wasn't busy enough. And then I ended up going down to Alphabet City, lower Manhattan. East, lower east side. Okay. And I mean, is there, did there come, a, I mean, what, eventually after a few years, you decided you wanted, you wanted to be a detective or? Um, so the way it worked out was um, I had a, a, a guy I knew from the police academy. We, we both grew up in pretty much the same neighborhood, not far from each other. And we became friends in the police academy. And then um, he went to Alphabet City right out of the academy, and I went to Coney Island. And uh, after just a short time, he ended up in Coney Island, and we worked a little bit together. Um, and then the, the job just arbitrarily transferred him back to Alphabet City. And we keep in touch over the phone, and he was like, Mike, you got to come out here. You got to see this neighborhood. It's out of control. We'll get to work together. Um, we'll make a million collars. And, and he was right. It was out of control, man. You'd see... Um, I remember driving to the, getting a ride to the police academy. Um, and sometimes the, my friend's father was actually driving us to the police academy. He was a cop and he would drop us off. Um, and he would take the shortcut through Alphabet City and you see lines of people, dozens of people, 20, 30 people on lines waiting to cop their heroin in the morning. It was like something you cannot imagine standing in line some people would be nodding out other people would be uh looking like businessmen wearing a suit and tie and um i learned that that's what they were actually doing was they were waiting to cut their their heroin so they can function for the day and it was nuts i wanted to let you guys know that i have a patreon account if you're interested in joining the patreon account it's got three tiers the top tier you actually get a different con man painting every single month if you're already joined and you're already supporting me i really appreciate that if you haven't joined yet and you're interested in joining i'm going to leave the contact information for patreon in the description thank you very much for watching the video well and but you were still a uh like a, a beat cop at that point right like you were in uniform or... when, I, when i first seen it i was actual i was going to the police academy i wasn't even a, a cop but it stuck in my head and eventually, that's when my partner, uh, my who will later be my partner, gets assigned first. And he calls me up and he says, "You got to come down here." Um, and then I went down there as a uniform cop. I transferred down there as a uniform cop. We worked together. Um, we made a lot of arrests, drug arrests, uh, robbery. Every you know, Alphabet City was 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 nuts. Guns, you know, it was a crazy area. Um, and we made a lot of arrests. And then the commander of our of our precinct put us both, him and I put both, my partner and I, in a special unit called, um, the unit was actually called Operation 8. And it was a government-funded unit that focused on the eight worst housing projects in Alphabet City, or in the Lower East Side, actually, which were all in Alphabet City. 
and um, they paid our overtime. They paid for our ga the gas in the car. Obviously, they paid for the our radios. It was just, it was kind of a prestigious unit in plain clothes. Um, it was like a glorified anti crime unit, so to speak. And um, that's where we worked uh, for a number of years. And you want to be in that unit, like you want to be, like your your buddy makes it sound like you want to be in this neighborhood, like it's a, it's an exciting. Yeah, I, I really did, bro, because it stuck in my head. It was so uh, imprinted in my mind when we went to the, like I said, when my father's, when my friend's father would drive us to the academy. That neighborhood left such an impression that there could be peop, twenty people online waiting to cop the heroin, and there wasn't anything going on. Nobody was locking these people up. And um, and that's just one line. Like you, you drive down Houston Street, there'd be one line of twenty people. You make a right on Avenue D, and there'd be three separate lines of twenty-five people waiting to cop dope. And I was like, how, how could how could this? What? Why is this happening in New York City like this? And my friend's father, who was in the SWAT team for NYPD, he said basically. Uh, the city knows about this. They know how bad this area is with the drugs, with the heroin. Um, but it's contained like to Avenue D, to these one projects, Walt Houses, Reese Houses, Baruch Houses. And the city, as long as it's contained here, isn't looking to break it up, isn't looking to upset it. That, all the drug addicts come here. That's where they score their dope. Um, people from other countries, when they came to the U.S., or when they came to New York and they needed dope, that's where they went. So, um, and again, such an imprint in my head. I, I wanted to go down there and make a difference, to be honest. And so what, there's just, there's just not enough cops to, to, to go in there and clean it up. Is that it? That well, what happened was back in the seventies, uh, the NAP commission was investigating, uh, dirty cops and they found that where, and because of the NAP commission, what they learned was with, where there were drugs and, and, and where there's drugs, there's money. And when cops are involved, it's very high. It's uh, very likely that it's going to entice cops into being corrupt. So they basically put uh, Mike Dowd, like Mike Dowd, Mike Mike Dowd. Yeah, I've had him. On, I had him on my show a couple times. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, terrible. So they kind of said cops. They didn't want cops to make low level street narcotics buys. So basically, they said if you see this kind of action, they didn't want you getting involved. But that was for the regular NYPD. At the time, I was a housing cop, which meant we we had the same police commissioner and we applied by the same rules. But for some reason, this rule didn't apply to housing cops. So when I got down there, me and my partner just locked, started locking everybody up. And, um, you know, like I said, it, it didn't apply to us. They didn't think we were going to get corrupt. They never, you know, the, the mission for the housing cops was basically keep the people in the housing projects safe. And, and and keep try to keep it clean and that's what we did so we went down there and we locked all these people up um the dealers uh, and and even the buyers and users and uh, eventually like i said the, the captain put us in this uh special unit so now we're doing the same kind of work but of course it's a lot easier being in civilian clothes soft clothes driving an unmarked car and um we worked we did that for several years so we were there so long we got to know the whole neighborhood basically yeah, the whole, all those, pro, you know, all the people in all those projects knew us from locking everybody up. And then at some point we hook up with the DEA and we make a, a really huge case where we took down 40 of the biggest heroin dealers uh, in the city. And most of them were based out of Alphabet City, Lower East Side. So um, 
So are you married at this point? No, no. At this no. point, I was a kid. To be honest, I was young. I, w- I got on a job when I was just barely turning 21. Um, I worked in Coney Island for like a little less than a year. Um, so I was when I was in Lower East Side, I was like 22, 23. And I worked there up until I was uh, probably almost 10 years. Um, OK, so. All right, so and the DEA comes in. You guys bust a bunch of heroin dealers. Um, like, at what point do you start? Do you become start doing undercover work or start investigating? I, I know I saw the thing on the uh, you going. It was like a, a secondary case to the son of Sam. Like it wasn't the son of Sam because you were just a kid, right? Uh, when that took place. Um, Right. And you know, anybody that doesn't know, like the son of Sam was a guy who was it was David uh, Berkowitz, right? David Berkowitz, right? Yeah, and he he killed um, six or seven was like s- seven women, right? He, so, he was just uh, shooting, right? Yeah, he well, he was a uh, so David Berkowitz was or David Berkowitz and or his accomplices, accomplice, yeah, accomplices were shooting and killing people back in 1976. And they shot, uh, I believe they killed seven people and shot eight. Or he shot seven and killed eight. Now, it depends on what you believe. If you believe David Berkowitz worked alone, then then that's, you know, it was him. If you believe what I kind of uncovered or what I, and again, I'll, I you know, I say this very, when I when I talk about him, um, I, I, I don't think David Berkowitz worked alone. However, I'm not sure that the whole scenario that I was told and that I investigated was 100% correct either. Right. I this is the guy you, this is when you went to At, um, Attica and you were right. um, talking what was. Um, the bike, Valentini. Yeah. Um, right. And they called him Tiny, right? Right. Tiny. Yeah. So first I was in DEA, like you said, like you asked, and then uh, we took down a bunch of cases. I did some on the cover work. Um, and then eventually I went into what was called the special investigations division um, as a sergeant. I made, I, I made sergeant, I left the DEA and I went into special investigations division. And for a short time I was in the missing person, NYPD missing person squad. And it was there that I got involved with uh, the after the after case or the, the uh, cold case of the David Berkowitz son of Sam case. Uh, what happened was, uh, an inmate from Attica called up. Uh, I spoke to him and he said he had information on uh, a very infamous New York City case, a kid by the name of Eton Pates. Eton Pates was the first the first kid put on a milk con. Uh, he was he also President uh, Ronald Reagan made May 25th National uh, Missing Missing Child Day all because nice. of Eton Pates. And what, what happened with Eton was he was they, he lived in Soho. He was a little boy, six years old. He was going to school for the first time on his own, going to take the school bus literally for the first time on his own. And his mother was watching out the window, you know, watching him go walk to the school bus and, and of course, going to wait for the school bus. And she literally turned her head for what she says was like 30 seconds or a minute to, to uh, pay attention to one of the other children in the house. And when she turned her head back, he was gone. So his name was Eton Pates. Now, when I get this call from the inmate at Attica, he says he has information on a name similar to Eton Pates. He 
he butchers the name Eton Pato. And this is going back. I get this call back in 1995. Uh, I'm sorry, maybe like 96. 96, uh, about 96, 97. I get this call like in 96, 97 um, while I was in this special investigations division. Um, and and the fact that he screwed up the kid's name. And remember, there was no internet, or at least they, absolutely there was no internet in Attica prison. Right. That was, I don't even know if it existed at this point, maybe a year, a couple of years later, two, three years later. But in any event, he's but he butchers this kid's name. And I said, I thought to myself, if, if you're going to call a cop and try to give him bullshit information, you would at least have the kid's name correct. Right. Right. You, you wouldn't screw it up where I would have to try to figure out who you were talking about. You would know, you know, you wouldn't want to entice me into thinking you have all this information. But anyway, I kind of believed that this guy had something. He was going to tell me something. And uh, we went up to Attica and... Um, Sure as hell, he was a 350-pound former 1% biker, uh, vice president of a biker gang. And and he was so big and, and so intimidating that the correction officers didn't even want to let me interview this guy without a CO in the in the room with us because he was such a, uh, a bad guy, you know? Um, but in any event, we interview him, and he tells us that he has information on the kid, Eton Page. And what he proceeds to tell us is that he, him and his biker gang did security for Eton for, for a cult up in Westchester, New York. Uh, and Westchester is a, a, is a nice, a nice area, ritzy area, a lot of money up there. And him and the biker gang did security for this cult up in Westchester. And what the, what him and his gang gang did was they secured the area, making sure no cops came in and busted what was going on in these in these mansions. Um, they wore their colors and they kept cops away if cops were going to come up and they kept any civilians away that weren't a buyer. Um, and at some point he becomes friendly with these people that he's working for and they let him in and out of these mansions uh, while there's these uh, rituals going on, satanic rituals. And they have, you know, there's sex party going on, drugs going on. And these satanic rituals occasionally go on also. And at one of these one of these parties, he walks in and he hears them call out the little boy's name and they perform some kind of like ceremony ritual on the kid. And he leaves, he says, at the time, but he later learns that they sacrificed the kid. And the kid is, according to him, or what he believes is Etan Pate, the missing kid. Uh, now, very recently, an arrest was made regarding Eton Page, and it had nothing to do with this. It was a uh, a guy who lived uh, worked in a bodega, and he said he took Eton back in 1979 when when the kid was missing. Um, he said he took him and he killed him. Now he that that guy. The first trial was a mistrial, and the second trial they convicted him. But that guy has a history of mental issues, or he. he uh, Admitted, admittedly, uh, a mental mental uh, uh, problems. He's on medical medication, and so who knows how true his story was? But in any case, in any case, they did convict him for the Eton page. So, so I'm, I'm assuming he, he didn't provide a body. He didn't. It was just his word saying I was. He was okay. Right. Uh, there was never a body recovered. God, 
listen. So who knows if he did it or, or the satanic cult that I investigated did it. And the way the satanic cult ties into Berkowitz, because this was supposedly the satanic, same cult that Berkowitz. Now, when Berkowitz first got arrested, he said that his neighbor's dog told him to do these killings. Right. Uh, yeah, there's a great movie. Did you? Is it uh, the Son of Sam? Is it the the Summer of Sam or something like that? There's a great movie. It was the movie Summer of Sam. I haven't seen it though. Spike, yeah, exactly. Spike Lee did it, I believe. Yeah, it was. It was. It was great. It was great because I've seen a couple documentaries on uh, the Son of Sam, the the whole thing, and you know how they, you know how they tracked him down, how they caught him, the whole thing. So that's a, it's a great movie. If anybody ch wants to check it out, but um, I'm sorry, but uh, go ahead. I was just. Sorry, yeah. just, every time I look, when I walk, when I listen to your other interview mm -hmm. and you were talking about the guy Tiny. Right. And he was he was locked up for sodomy, right? So sodomizing a child. Tiny was locked up for sodomizing his own infant daughter. What's uh, wrong with what is wrong with people? I mean, every time I hear stuff like that, I just think like that Lake Mead, they're draining Lake Mead. Right. And they keep finding these bodies. And all I can think is. Like we're a horrible species and, and I don't even, I'm just seeing what's on the media. And I think what does a police officer see on a daily basis? Like I would just be disgusted by people. And I've, I've been in prison with guys who were there for killing five, six people. I used to eat, listen, actually had a, a really nice guy who probably killed six or seven people. I was in the medium with him. Very nice guy. Of course he doesn't kill me, but you know, it was like, he was super nice. And but like you were saying, like some people are just just totally evil, totally evil, man. And, like, I, and you have to sit down and deal with them. Yeah. Well, I, I can imagine what you've seen, like, yeah. you know, firsthand too. like like watching it on the watching it on uh, YouTube or on TV is vastly different than walking into a room and seeing just bodies and. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You were uh, saying uh, the tiny you were. You are, were investigating Tiny, and so he had told you all of those things. He had also, you said, told you several things that made you think he was credible. Yeah, he gave us, you know, um, so he, what he wanted, he wanted to be let out. He wanted to be, um, help us to get per, get him paroled. That's what he was, you know, he wasn't doing it out of the goodness of his heart, obviously. No, of course not. Yeah, he had already been locked up since 1980, I want to say 83 or 84, so he had been in all this time. I'm sure he had been in front of parole board more than once. Um, or maybe not. Maybe maybe this was his first time. And he wanted to be us to help him get paroled. And that's why he was giving us this information. Um, the information, some of it, just on the story alone, and he was very articulate. And um, he had a lot of information off the top of his, you know, top of his head. But it needed to be verified, you know, like, you know, people, he gave us names of individuals. They were all dead, um, gave us locations. They were since different locations since 1983, um, since he was out or, or prior, because he was doing this in the 70s. Uh, um, this whole Tom Bates thing happened in 79. So uh, it's been years since he's been out on the street. So a lot of the stuff he gave us wasn't something we could uh, confirm. But he did give us information that we did confirm that was really uh, pretty amazing stuff. He gave us a homicide in Forest Hill Park of a girl that 
he says him and uh, his the president of the biker gang um, and and some of the other associates, uh, she wanted to be initiated into the cult. And uh, what they did was they told her they were going to just do a, a like a, a, a bleeding sacrifice where they took some of her blood and they put her on a, a table in Forest Hill Park, um, like a checker, you know, like where people play checkers and chest or cement tables. They put her on that. And they, he, they thought they were going to bless, she thought they were going to bless her with this uh, big old fashioned sword. And what they actually do is the biker president actually uh, kills her with it. Um, and the way he described the girl, she had a tattoo of a boy's name on her shoulder. And this was in this, you know, uh, late 70s, early 80s. A lot, most girls didn't have tattoos. Even if they were into bikes, that's different. But in, in the general population, Females didn't have tattoos. So he couldn't give us the exact date, the time, you know, the exact date, the month, or even the year. But he gave us an approximation of when it happened. And he said it was there was snow on the ground. Um, it was either this year or this year, and it happened in Forest Hills Park. Now, all the precincts changed their their borders and things changed and um, you know, their areas. So we couldn't even figure out what precinct it actually happened in. Uh, but I was lucky enough to know somebody in, in one police plaza uh, where the records were kept and everything's on paper. There's no computer, you know, nothing was in computers. And um, basically I gave him the same information this guy gave me. It was a female who died, who was killed. In, in uh, The body was supposedly left in Forest Hills Park. There was snow on the ground. And sure as hell, somebody came up, one of my, the guy came up with the report of a female DOA with a tattoo on her, on her back. Uh, it had the name, I forgot what name, or a male's name. And she died from the, a heavy object, a blunt, blunt drama going through her her chest cavity. Um, so, and the first person, or actually the only person interviewed in the case was the president of the bike gang, who... The police just happened to grab him, and he said, "Oh, I know this girl. I've seen her around, but I don't. I don't really know her." Um, something to that effect. So Tiny gave us information that was verified. You know, he did give us information that was verified. Right. So, um, and he gave us other stuff that 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 made sense, and and we were able to check out. And, um, I mean, he was a dirtbag, and he was looking to get out, but he did have information that 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 seemed okay. So how did that connect to Berkowitz? Like, Yeah, well, well the way it connects to Berkowitz was, um, again, it's the same, it was the same cult. And Tiny had said that he had run into, into Berkowitz on at least one occasion. Um, now, he also said that um, there's a member, another member of his biker gang did a, did a son of Sam similar killing or shooting. I don't remember if the victims died or they just shot. And um, he said that it, uh, the guy who actually did the shootings, first of all, it wasn't investigated as a son of Sam killing because the victims were black. And all the Berkowitz's, uh, all the Berkowitz's victims were white. Oh, and just let me backtrack a little bit. After Berkowitz initially got arrested and said that the dog told him to do it, he recants that story a few years later. And he says, that, you know, that was a story that we planned out. What really, 
Berkowitz said himself that he was part of a satanic cult and these killings were part of the what part of the cults uh what they were looking to do was kill people and start like a havoc in New York City. And Berkowitz said that himself. After he said it after he said that shortly after he was uh grabbed in jail and slashed and they just ne- nearly missed his jugular. And since then he won't talk about the killings at all. Uh, he says he's in fear of not only his life, but the life of his family. He's got some relatives still alive. So he won't talk about it. But Berkowitz actually admitted to being part of this organization or cult or whatever you want to call them. Getting back to Tiny, he said that one of the members of his biker gang actually did a, Ber- a Son of Sam style killing. And he, the guy was actually in jail for a whole different case. It had nothing to do with Berkowitz. He was in jail. Um, and he gave us the guy's name. So we went up and we interviewed this guy. Uh, now, before going up, I told Tiny, um, what would make this guy want to talk to us? He has no reason to talk to us. He's in jail. He's getting out uh, soon, actually. W- what would what would be this guy's motive for talking to us about, about the past shootings that he did, the, sh- the Berkowitz-style shootings? And what he said was, this guy did another homicide. Had nothing to do with Berkowitz. Nothing to do with this cult. He said, he did a homicide at a basketball on a basketball court. He said, in front of a, a whole bunch of people. He said, um, if you have witnesses to that homicide, this guy would be afraid he'd go to jail for that homicide. Maybe you could get him to talk about the Berkowitz shootings or the Son of Sam style shootings. So what I did was I put a, a couple of phone books in a manila, uh, uh, an envelope, a uh, folder, and made this guy think we had information on that basketball shooting. Right. And I went up there and I threw it on the desk and I told him, you did a shooting, uh, and I, it was in New York, I think, or Brownsville, I don't remember where. I said, you killed a guy in Brownsville playing basketball in front of 50 people. This, this folder is full of 50 people I want to testify against you for that shooting you did in, in the basketball court. Because apparently he was playing basketball, something went wrong, he went to his car, he pulled out a gun and shot this guy in front of everybody. He didn't, he didn't care. I said, this, this folder's full of people that are going to testify against you. And uh, once I said that, he was stunned because he was on his way get, to go home and now he's going to get hit with this old homicide. Right. So I said, the only way you can help yourself is if you give us a statement I'll make this thing go away. Give us a statement on the shooting you did that was like a, like the Son of Sam shooting. And he did. He gave us a written statement that he shot two people in like a lover's lane um, in Cypress Hills, which is in Brooklyn. Uh, and the victims were black, he said. And it was never investigated. And he gave us a whole written statement on it. Not only did he give us a written statement on that, he gave us a written statement on the shooting he did in the basketball courts. He admitted to that on paper. Did that catch up with him or? Well, what happens eventually is the, the NYPD, the supervisors, whatever, um, they they made the cases go away. They, they didn't want uh, they didn't want us to deal with this Berkowitz case anymore. And um, we were told to drop, drop, drop everything, basically. You, you have no, you just, they didn't want the publicity. They didn't want it being brought back up. They it just, you know why, or what do you, um, think? What do you think? 
what what I think is that um, well, first of all, it was never going to be an open and shut case. You know, there was a lot more work to do on on if the uh, if these other people did exist and and um, um, if this cult was involved or how many more people were involved. I, that's number one. So it was never uh, never an open and shut case for sure. But also, I think that the NYPD or the supervisors at the time or whatever, all, all the way up to the, may, the mayor's office. Um, Berkowitz was in jail. He admitted to the killings. Um, people he's got promoted. He's not talking. He's not talking. Um, like I said, some people got promoted. Uh, you know, it was fine the way it was, basically. Okay. No need to open it up and stop more, more, you know, well, what if they have to 20 years, they find out, you find out that you were, uh, what if after 20 years, you find out that you were living next to one of these guys that was doing these killings and he's been out all these years, not 20 years since 1976. Right. I mean, and, and more than one, more than one people doing these killings and living out, living a free life now. So I think it was, would have been bad for the police department. Okay. Um, all right. So what? Um, so what about that? You were you were also you worked undercover, right? Yeah. Yeah. How, how does that work? Like. Um. So, you know, I I worked undercover when I, mostly when I was with the DEA. I bought you know narcotics. In fact, I bought drugs from a kind of a, a well-known guy. Um, well. So there were certain areas in, in Brooklyn, all over, obviously everywhere, but back in the, this was in the early 90s, um, there was, the crack epidemic was out of control, right? And the chief asked me, you know, what we could do about it. So these gangs and these cliques and these drug drug organizations are hard to infiltrate. Um, and very few of them, if they did flip, they, you know, if the, if the people in the organizations flip, their lives were in danger, and so it was hard to get in. If you guys didn't know, I also do I do paintings, and uh, if you're interested in a painting, I'm going to leave my contact information in the description beneath the video. Back to the video. So what I do is I would just take the DEA car. I had a car assigned to me, um, and it was a it was a just a, it was a a seized car. So it was a regular vehicle. There was no, no lights on it, no sirens, none of that shit. Just a regular seized vehicle. And I drive through and had, try to hang out in these neighborhoods where where we were targeting, basically, where you know where these main guys lived and where they hung out. On this one particular case that I'll talk about, it was the Red Hook Projects, um, which at the time was had like some of the most one of the areas in New York that had the most shootings and the most killings. And um, I meet this uh, I meet this guy and. I don't bring, I don't take the DEA with me because if, uh, I can't have a surveillance team following me. Uh, first of all, I'm the only Italian guy in this whole area, only white guy, only Italian guy in this area. Um, and then if they would see other guys in cars, I just happen to see other guys in cars in the same on the same day, they would know right away that I was, you know, right. so I didn't tell anyone. I would just go out on my own. I'd, I'd, I'd wear like a shirt where they could see I had no wire, no gun. I wear, you know, very casual clothes. Um, 
so they would know I was unarmed. And I would just drive around the area and I'd just try to meet people. And I, and I eventually met people. <clears throat> I, met, I eventually meet this guy who's a pretty big crack dealer. Uh, and he introduces me to a guy by the name of uh, Calvin Klein Bacotti. Now, Calvin Klein is, he's the guy that Jay-Z sings about in, in uh, a couple of songs. And according to Calvin Klein and other people, he's the persona that Jay-Z uh, kind of takes when, uh, when he talks about all this drug activity and the shootings. In fact, Calvin Klein and Jay-Z both together got arrested out of state. I'm not sure what state for a shooting. And um, they were both going to go to jail or go to trial. But Calvin Klein said that he took all the weight so Jay-Z wouldn't have to deal with the trial because he knew Jay-Z was going to make it big at some point because he was already rapping and he was like on his way up. So according to, to Calvin, um, he took the weight. He went away for a few years on the shooting, expecting Jay-Z to hook him up when he got out. Um, which I don't think ever happened. I've heard, I've heard on YouTube and other places that Calvin was uh, kind of upset that Jay Z never hooked him up. But he does. It's obvious it was it was him that he was singing about in 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 these songs. Um, I think he even mentions him a few times. He talks about a, a particular spot where they were, where he where Jay Z supposedly did these drug deals, and that's the spot where me and this guy Calvin did the deals. Um, so I get Calvin. I get him pretty for uh, heavy, heavy uh, felony crack weight. Um, and he goes away, he does a lot of time. I'm not sure how much, I forgot. I used to know, but he did at least 10 years, maybe more for the, for the crack. And um, that, that, that was actually a really, a really good case because he, you know, he was known to be a shooter, or, you know, he was a bad guy, let's just say that. Okay. Um... So what else? So I, I mean, at this point, are th at this point, are you married? Or I'm only asking because I'm wondering, like, what is your, what would your wife think about you going into these areas? And you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's yeah. like super dangerous. And so I didn't know. Um, at that point, I wasn't married. No, I, I I'm, I get, I'm married during the Berkowitz stuff. Where you know, you know, we're, we're investigating that and the cult and and um. Yeah, during that I was married, but all the, the undercover was kind of um, it was kind of good because I was on my own. You know, I only had to worry about myself basically. Right. Yeah. Right. And then the Berkowitz thing. I mean, you're going into a prison like it's not like it's super dangerous or anything. There's so many, you know, there's such controlled measurement. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, um. So how long? So you were what? Twenty years? Twenty five years? I did 20, 20 years just about on the button, and then I retired. Yeah. So, I mean, can you continue to be a police officer, or do you basically have to retire at that point? No, no, no I was still young. I was, uh, no, no, I, I, I um, the, the, the retirement is you could do 20 years and get out. You could do up to, or you could do up until you're 62 years old. Okay. But I did 20 years. I retired quite a few years ago, actually. I was really young when I retired. Because I got on young. I got on when I was barely 21. Right. What you were just, you're just done. Yeah. Kind of just done. You know, it's, it, um, I love the work. I like luck. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I like luck lot. I liked locking bad guys up when they would, when they deserved it. So I did enjoy the work, 
but it was it's a very, like any other big organization is very political you know the police department and sometimes you get tired of dealing with uh supervisors and bosses and you know um so I, so i just i did 20 years i was i, I got out without uh without getting shot and i was kind of happy everything worked out okay and i just got out did you ever have you ever pulled your weapon or yeah yeah of course yeah new york uh yeah you have to pull your weapon uh in new york on on some certain occasions but the thing about pulling your weapon is you can't shoot unless life or limb is in danger or somebody's in danger you know so you can pull your weapon and somebody could tell you well now now what what are you gonna do you're gonna shoot me so you can't pull your weapon unless you're really sure you're gonna you may have to shoot someone um so okay so once uh once you retired uh what are you what are you doing now just i mean did you oh. do did you go on to another career or a lot of guys you know, they, they'll go, they'll, let's say, be a police officer or they'll go in the military. They get out after 20 years, then they become a correctional officer or maybe they become law enforcement or a lot of guys go from civil servant kind of jobs to one to another. Yeah. For a little while, I did some PI work. Um, I, I, and then I wasn't happy with it. I just wasn't my thing. So, um, and then I wrote a book, as you know, uh, I got it here, just the name of it. Um, and it was option for film a few times, Alphaville, 1988. Welcome to Heroin City. I wrote that book. Um, and like I said, it was optioned for film. Actually, uh, Spike Lee was kind of involved with it the first time it was optioned. Um, Spike Lee, Robert De Niro. Um, and I own a, and, and currently I own and run a uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy in, uh, here in uh, Staten Island, New York. Okay. And you, how long ago did you start the YouTube channel? And I started the channel probably, I want to say, seven, eight months ago. Okay, and you got you got like what twelve, thirteen hundred subscribers. Like the subscribers are going like that's good. Like, yeah. Um, I talked to there's a guy here, um, Chris K, uh, who runs Podfest. Uh, it's like one of the largest um, YouTube organizations here, and he was telling me that like if you can, if you can get over ten thousand subscribers, you're doing better than basically ninety percent of of YouTube. You know, so and he and he was also saying. You know Danny with Concrete? No, I, I, I'm familiar with Concrete, but I don't know Danny, no. Yeah, Danny was saying, what did he say? Because I was complaining about my subscribers when I first started. It's like, ah, oh, it's just not growing. And, it, and he's like, man, he said after like, I think he said three or four years, he had like, like 7,000 subscribers. He said, wow. it took me almost like two years to get 1,000 subscribers. Stop bitching. Wow. So, but that's, that's what. A lot. Yeah, well, that's what Chris Chris was saying. He was like, "Look, it, it takes a long time to even get like a thousand subscribers." So yeah, I think I've read that it uh, it takes normally over way over a year to get a thousand. Yeah, subscribers, right. And I did it pretty quick, but you know, it's it's a, you know you got to get on, you got to got to get on and, and and do your thing when you when you got that channel. I mean, look at you, huh? you got a a lot of subscribers and and you put out great content. Yeah, so, but I've been. I, I, I'm also I'm also lucky, like I've been lucky because I have a good story. So I keep getting myself on these different programs and they reached out to me. I, I can't even say it's me. Like people reached out to me because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm bumbling my way through it. But, it, <laughs> but it's, it's starting to work. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing great, bro. Good for you. Well, I have a question about the book. Like what? So it was optioned a few times. I mean, what's happening now? Is it just kind of 
Um, so it was optioned a couple of times for film or fil- uh, the first time I believe was for TV. Um, and Robert De Niro was involved. Showtime was involved. Uh, Spike Lee was signed on to direct and it didn't get picked up. And I actually saw the script, believe it or not. And um, I had nothing to do with the script. Obviously they own once they, you know, how it goes once they option it, they own it. Um, but the script, well, I, I, I didn't like it at all. Really. So I'm, I hate to say I'm glad it didn't get made because I would have probably made money, more money. Um, but I wasn't upset when it didn't get picked up. And then it got picked up again by uh, Brad Furman, who did Lincoln Lawyer. And um, okay. yeah, he did a couple of pretty good movies, actually. <clears throat> and it sat on a shelf. They didn't hustle with it. They, you know, I was really disappointed the way they treated the, you know, treated the book. And then uh, I finally got the rights back. And now uh, they're looking actually at making a, uh, a documentary, like a couple, like a spiral, a four-part documentary out of the book. So that's what I'm kind of in, in, in talks with right now. So the book, so are you like, are you the main character or, or did you write it as a... No, it's a, it's a, it's like a biography, actually. It's about my life, okay. you know, growing up in Brooklyn with the mob guys and then becoming a cop. Um, and it really focuses on one, alpha, the, the big case in Alphabet City when we took down, you know, because the idea was it was one, the way it worked in Alphabet City was it was one particular drug dealer that ran... Even though there was a lot of younger, I don't want to say younger, smaller guy level guys who at the time were making, the one main guy was making, he admitted to making $101,000 per day and killing 18 people himself and having put a hand in killing over 100 people. So that's the main guy. So that particular main guy had a lot of other guys involved with his organization. And even the guys that weren't making $101,000 per day, they were still driving brand new Lamborghinis and Ferraris. And what I always say is they weren't leased because you couldn't lease a car back in 1986. You had to buy it. These guys, young guys, like they were my age. Again, I was young. I was 21, 22. These guys were my age and they were driving Lamborghinis and Ferraris and they had houses all over. And um, But the problem with that life is, you, you know, they end up dead or in jail, you know? Yeah. And the main guy eventually, um, I'll just say how the main guy got arrested. So we went up on a wiretap, uh, on several wiretaps in the course of that investigation. And that's how we were able to take down 40, 40 different dealers. Because, you know, you talk on the phone, then that guy talks on the phone. And so it, it was helpful, obviously, in helping us take down these 40 guys. The main guy that we wanted he never gets on the phone with these guys. Right before we go up on the phone, apparently he had a falling out with some of them. So he don't talk. <clears throat> we don't get him. And that's the real good. That's the guy I really wanted to get. And that's why we really went up on, you know, this whole operation was kind of geared towards him. We don't get him. But um, what happens is one day I'm reading, shortly after this big arrest, I'm reading the newspaper and I see a guy in Brooklyn it's, uh, it's an article, article about a, a big heroin dealer in Brooklyn who's cooperating. And his name was Hernandez. I'll never forget. His name was Hernandez. And he used to put out a dope name, Unknown. And I never really dealt with Unknown. I didn't know Hernandez, but it just stuck in my head all of these years. Anyway, I'm reading the paper. And I said, well, if this guy Hernandez is such a big heroin guy, 
he's got to know the guy that I really want because that's the way it is. Right. Right. So I bring the, I bring it to the attention of the U S attorney. And I say, does this Hernandez who's cooperating? Does he know my, this guy? They're going to find out. They find out. Yeah, he does. And he has to cooperate. You know how it is. When you cooperate, you have to cooperate. Oh yeah. yeah. What they, you got to be all in. You got to be all in. So yeah, he knew that he knew, he knew my guy and yeah, he's going to be all in and he's going to cooperate. And eventually uh, the DEA went and got this guy and put him away. Okay. So I didn't directly catch him. It was actually kind of a coincidence. I happened to read the paper and uh, got, it was brought to light, you know, that this guy would go against my guy. All right. Well, um, okay. I'm going to, you know, we're, we're coming up on it. So I'm going to, uh, yeah, look, if, if um, can you hold the book up again? Yeah. Yeah. If anybody's interested, uh, I'll, I'll put the, the link in the description and check out the book and um, yeah, uh, hopefully you can come on, you know, hopefully something happens with it. You can come on again. And uh, I want to talk to you uh, once I in the broadcast real quick uh, about something um, cool. other than um, yeah. Other than that, everything we're good. Everything's good. Yeah. Man, thank you. Thanks again for having me, bro. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and I'll just shout out my channel. If you don't mind Mike Cadell yeah. up against the wall. Um, and just if your people don't mind checking it out, if they, you know, maybe they'll enjoy. I talk about cop, you know, I talk about my arrest, going on the cover, some of the Berkowitz stuff, you know, kind of cool stuff. Hopefully you know, some of your people will dig it. Yeah, that's the the one I, I watch. I was actually telling um, uh, my girlfriend, I was like, you know, I watched this thing. As, as I watched this part one, I said, then it ended. I said, now I don't know what happened. Like, I don't understand what the connection was. And I was like, what? so because she is, well, what are you going to talk about? I said, I don't know. I'll tell you one thing I want to know is what the connection with Berkowitz was on this guy, Tiny. So, cool. um, okay, well, uh, so let me go ahead and say that, you know, uh, hey, uh, if you if you like the video, do me a favor and hit subscribe, hit the bell so you get notified, share the video to your friends and family, leave me a comment. I try and respond to almost all the comments if they're worth responding to. And uh, that's it. And all of... Uh, all Mike's links uh, will be in the description box. And I appreciate you guys uh, following me and watching the video and see you.